Just in and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. If you find even a speckle of life somewhere, what that means is that life must be everywhere. It must be distributed throughout that cosmos. And I think living in a world where you look up at the sky and you know that around all of these other stars, there are planets and there are some life forms, whatever shape they take, I think just puts me into even a deeper connection with the cosmic surroundings. That's Lisa Kaltenegger. She's an expert at figuring out how to tell which of the billions of planets out there might have life on them. She's finding ways to read the skies that are ingenious, and she's awfully good at explaining it. This is great that you can be on the show because you are such a good communicator. You're clear and vivid, and you're funny, too. <laughs> Thank so you very great, much. <laughs> great to have you on the show. I heard you say once that you hope to find life on other planets in our lifetime. Kind of an obvious question, but I'm kind of curious to know what your answer is to the question, why? One of the things that I found most amazing, or I find most amazing about the light, about the time we live in, is that we live in the time that humankind for the first time has the technology that we can actually figure out whether we're alone in the universe. And what I mean by that is we know how to look for signs of the living organism on another world. And we are building right now the telescopes who will be big enough to get enough light collected to be able to look at that for a planet like the Earth orbiting a star that is so far away. It's so interesting, the indirect ways you have of figuring out that there's probably life. I mean, the wobble of the star. Tell me more about that. So the first step in all of this is trying to figure out if they're actually planet around other stars. And so what we have is most of these thousands of planets, we have more than 4,000 planets that we confirmed. We know more than 4,000 planets orbiting other suns, other stars. So when you go out at night and see a star up there, every star basically has at least one planet. So you're looking at other planetary systems, even so you can see the planets because they're too small. 
But the way that we figure out that they are there is we are very, very precisely looking at their stars. And if the stars move, the wobble movement, then that tells you something tucks on the star and makes it move. And usually in class, I always talk about go to a park and you see somebody who leans back really strongly. You don't have to see the dog that tries to go in the direction the owner doesn't want to go to know that this person is being pulled. And then if the dog were running around you, you would basically wobble back and forth trying to keep your position. And the more massive the dog, so the bigger the dog, the heavier the dog, then the more you're going to wobble or the more you have to lean back to keep that stability. And so this so is why. So you can tell from the wobble how, how much, how big this, the planet is. What if Absolutely. there's more than one planet? Is the wobble more chaotic or one? Yeah, so basically then the wobble is an overlaying of different motions. So you can see, for example, for our own sun, you can see the back and forth movement due to Jupiter, our biggest planets, every 11 years. And on top of that, every one year, the sun moves back and forth because of the Earth. And so for each planet, it has a specific movement. And when you look at the movement of the star and you say, ooh, there's one movement it does in one year, there's one movement it does every 11 years. This is how you can then tease out how many planets go around the star. But what we found is that most other systems are more tightly packed. And so what that means is that we found planets that only need about four and a half days to go around their stars, or even 18 mm. hours, not even a day. The four and a mm. half day is the one that just got the Nobel Prize, 51 Pegasus B, the first one that we found, mass about the mass of Jupiter. But in a four and a half day orbit, so Monday morning to Friday afternoon, then the year's over and you can celebrate your birthday again. So there are so many different planets out there. And looking at our own system just gives us this one few. But now we have thousands of other planetary systems and we figure out, ooh, they can be big and small. Some of them are so hot that any rock we know would melt on them. We call those lava worlds. So they would have liquid lava all over the surface. So those are the ones in the 18-hour orbit or like couple of day orbit very close to their stars. And we also find some that are much bigger than the Earth and very fluffy, but they go around their stars in, I don't know, a month or something. So we find this whole diversity and all of it is still a little bit biased because we can find the ones that are closer to the star faster. And so our view of these other planetary systems is a little bit shifted towards, ooh, there's so many small and very close by planets. Because if you wanted to find Jupiter, you'd have to look for about 11 years. And we haven't done that yet, not for many stars. I'm sort of interested in the odds. For instance, I think I've heard you say that one out of five planets are ideally situated from just the right distance from their sun to possibly be Earth-like. Is that right? One in five? And so what we found absolutely is one in five. So one in five stars have a planet that's at the right distance. Oh, one in five stars, I see. One in five stars has a planet. That's That's a lot of stars. That's a lot of stars because in our own galaxy, we have about 200 billion stars. So we're talking about 40 billion potential Earths. So in a way, even if life is really hard to make for whatever reason, we don't know yet. I like the odds that we're facing. The movement of the planet, any planet, across its 
star. That seems to give us two bits of information, right? One is darkening the star momentarily, and the other is that we we see its chemical composition because we can analyze the light coming through its atmosphere. Is that close? Absolutely. That's exactly right. So when you look, the second uh, method we have, transiting method is what we call it, it's basically you look at this hot, bright star. It's bright because the surface is so incredibly hot, like for the sun. And so Mm. sometimes we see the stars become a little bit less bright. And that's due to a planet going between us and its star. So it appears as if the star becomes a little bit less bright. And as soon as the planet goes out of our point of view, our line of view to the star, we see the full brightness again. And while that is happening, if the planet is just between us and the star, part of the stellar light gets filtered through the air of the planet before getting to us. So when I look at the light that comes from the star, that has been filtered through the planet's atmosphere, there's some light missing. And so basically, if I see some light, like the green is not as bright as it should be, I can tell you what chemical that actually is. If the light blue is not as bright as it should be, I can tell you, ooh, there's another chemical in the air, like water. And if I say, ooh, the yellow is not as bright as it should be, the light's not enough, there should be more, that tells me which molecule it hit or which atom it hit. And I know because I can do this in the lab, I can have a gas, I shine the light onto it, and I measure what comes out on the other side. Thus, I have a template to know, ooh, this light yellow isn't there, so it's this chemical. So your hope to find life on another planet is to answer the question, are we alone? That's what it sounds like. But... How how much how developed does a life have to be for you not to feel alone? I honestly have to say that I think life is incredibly fascinating and trying to figure out what life would develop into on a completely different environment is what I find fascinating. So in a way, I when I talk about life, I don't talk about you and me. Even so, that would be great if we could find life that we could even communicate with. And of course, normally the joke that I have in my astronomy class is like, better speak English, right? Because first we have to figure out how to communicate. And there was yeah, really... right. You, you can feel pretty alone even if you both speak English. <laughs> Absolutely. That is true, too, you know? This accounts for half of all divorces, I think. Yeah. But I think the key point is if you find even a speckle of life somewhere, what that means is that life must be everywhere. Because if we can find a speckle of life somewhere with the technology we have, what's not that great yet, we just at the verge of being able to find those things, then it must be distributed throughout that cosmos. And I think living in a world where you look up at the sky and you know that around all of these other stars, there are planets and there are some life forms, whatever shape they take, I think just puts me into even a deeper connection with the cosmic surroundings. Do you think that, is there any evidence except what we've experienced, which is sort of anecdotal because all we know is us, uh, is there any thinking that gives us the idea in a reasonable way that if there's any kind of life, it will probably evolve into intelligent life or might it just stay forever 
at, at, a, at a, what we think of as a lower level. I think you're already raising a couple of really interesting questions here. And one of them is like, what's intelligent, right? When can we figure out that it's actually intelligent even on our own planet, right? I think there's way more intelligent life forms than we give them credit for, for now. But of course, the second question that you packed into this is like, well, there is life, there's maybe even intelligent life, but there's intelligent life or life we can communicate with, that we can interact with and maybe ask even questions. And I think we have tiers of life that we're looking for. But I think for starters, <laughs> I'd be happy to find any life and everything after that is a cherry on top. I'm wondering about the variety that exists in, in life on our planet and what if that same kind of variety exists in other worlds. For instance, our planet, as far as I understand it, started out with anaerobic life. And then there was this big shift to aerobic life, which is what we enjoy. So what if, what if there are planets that are anaerobic would we still find them with the, the, the way you are searching for life presently? And what if we have planets that have somehow found a way, or is this too crazy, that they've somehow found a way to have life without water? Well, these are uh, big questions in science right now. So for the anaerobic, we go back in time for the Earth and we say, what were the unique signatures that we could look for? And the further you go back in this anaerobic regime, the more um, non-unique the signatures become because if uh, biota now makes CO2 or methane, that can also be made by volcanoes. So it's really hard to pick up life mm, on anaerobic uh, worlds. Yeah. We have yeah. some idea, but it's going to be very hard to say uniquely, I'm sure this is life. But then nature did something interesting. So it basically developed to the point, and biologists will argue, that every life form will do that. It will develop to the point where something will produce oxygen and something else will use it because you get so much energy out when you can use oxygen. Then uh, what we're looking for, this golden fingerprint or this light fingerprint that indicates life on the Earth, that's the combination of oxygen or ozone with a reducing gas like methane, because if you have oxygen and methane, it will actually uh, produce CO2 and water really fast. So if you still see oxygen in the atmosphere when there's a reducing gas around, that tells you something produces oxygen in huge amounts. And if it's a temperate planet, our only explanation is that it's life. And so this is the ladder that we go down. And from everything we know, and again, sample of one, we expect other planets to go through the same evolution. But how much time they need for each evolution step is a completely open question. Also, one of the really interesting things is the evolution timescale on the Earth's norm. So after four billion years, basically four and a half, you arrive at us or something like us, or are other planets faster or are other planets slower in evolution? So that's another thing that we can actually look for when we look for planets around other stars. And it'd be really interesting to see how we fit in in terms of evolution fastness. You know, are we the fastest? Are we the slowest? Are we somewhere in the middle? So it would answer a lot of questions we have about our own planet too. When you were talking about intelligent life, 
that we might try to communicate with. We already have, it seems to me, intelligent life that we might try to communicate with, at least maybe to practice for when we find life someplace else, uh, assuming we'd find it and then be able to communicate with it because that's not going to be so easy either. We've got octopuses that are really smart and whales and dolphins and they seem to, the whales and dolphins seem to communicate with each other pretty well. Should we practice trying to learn to communicate with them so that we get techniques that we can use if we contact creatures in, out in space? Oh, absolutely. I completely agree with that. And what I use in class now when say, I say, look, have you ever tried to talk to a jellyfish? Communicate with no, a jellyfish, I, right? I, I try running when I get a jellyfish near. <laughs> See, if you could communicate with the jellyfish to tell it stop, stay where you are. I'm swimming here. That would be so much more useful. <laughs> Have you ever tried to do that? <laughs> Not with any success. But I completely agree. I think the strategies that we do employ and that we're starting to learn of how to communicate with dolphins and whales and octopus, as you were saying, are definitely the first steps towards trying to come up with something universal that we could use to try to communicate if the situation arises. So it seems to me that the problems of communicating across the, the galaxy are so great that the chances of finding a civilization that's, that can communicate with us that's less developed than ours are lower than the chances of finding one that's way advanced. And if they are way advanced... Are we then in the position of the aboriginals of the countries that got colonized and used as slaves? Yeah, I think it was either Stephen Hawking or Martin Rees worried about that. Let's not contact them, they said. We don't know who they are. Stephen Hawkins was worrying about that. And the interesting thing is there are two interesting things in this. One, if you're worried about this at all, the distances in the cosmos, the distances between stars are huge. So... If you take all the planets in our solar system and you shrink it to the size of a cookie, the next star over, our neighboring star, so the sun's neighboring star, Proxima Centauri, is two football fields away in the same scale. So it's a and huge And how, how many distance, light years is that? About four light years. So the distances are so vast that for anybody to come and use us as a slave, there would have to be a super compelling reason because it's going to take energy and it's, it's going to cost a lot. And it's going to be a really long, boring journey. So the question is like, what would be important enough? And I do love us. I think we are great, but we are really not better slaves than a robot you could do. Because if you can do space travel, I don't think you need the human physiology to carry something for you, right? So so, so you've thought about this. I, I have thought about this because my students ask this a lot, like in classes. So I think our view of how an interaction could play out is very much biased by history where it didn't work out like it should have, right? As you said, with the Aborigines or the Native Americans, definitely not the way to go. And so because travel is so difficult and it's so far between stars, I have high hopes that we'll get to the point where we're going to have a better suggestion, you know, than to go there and kill everyone. And so that is my solution also for if anybody ever comes and tries to talk to us, I hope they're, like, if they do space travel, you know, they're advanced enough not to come and try to kill everyone because why? There's really no good reason why you would want to do this, kind of. 
I know, but you're counting so much on logic and wisdom. And we've been around for only a few hundred thousand years, but we haven't developed much in that process. However, having said that, to get to a spacefaring technology, I think you have to go with more technology, with wisdom and logic. Wisdom will come along. I hope you're right. After this short break, Lisa tells me how growing up in a small town in Austria led her all the way out to the rest of the cosmos. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack. And save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses. Plus, updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Lisa Kaltenegger. It seems to me that you've already accumulated enough information to figure out that there probably is life. What do you need to be definite about that? So, I'm a scientist, and we do not know yet how easy it is to evolve life what you need for it. And even though there are so many places that could be like Earth, we do not yet know if that means that life will develop everywhere or nowhere except here on the Earth. But the bigger surprise as a scientist would be if we find nothing, because then we have to figure out what would have been so incredibly special here on Earth for life to get started here and not anywhere else. It's a worse result in the search, but it's, again, really stimulating trying to figure out why would this be so different here. And we have no indication so far that our planet is different from these other planets we found, but we have not yet figured out what the atmospheric makeup of these planets is. They should have water like we have here on the Earth. They should have a lot of carbon. They should have a lot of oxygen, you know, just basically normal building blocks of all the universe. And so, yes, I sound very, uh, very positive and very happy about the search because I think it's one of the most uh, fascinating adventures humankind has ever undertaken. And we'll live in the right time that if life is everywhere, we'll be able to find it. However, I do not know how widespread life is in this universe, in this cosmos. And so that's, again, why it's so incredibly interesting to search, to be able to figure that out. You know, as, you, as we talk, I, I hear one of the hallmarks of your style, which is your, what sounds like totally sincere enthusiasm. You really are lit up by this. When did that start? Were you 
Did you go through a love of space the way most kids do and never leave it? Well, for me— How did it happen? For me, it's, I think, a little bit untraditional in a way that I was always curious about the whole—everything. Kind of everything. I think kids are, right? But I kind of luckily never lost that. And my parents also really like, I have loads of books and stuff. But I always wanted to know how things work. And I think most scientists do. And then when I started to study, I actually started to study different kind of things because I wanted to know this and this and this. And so at that time, they found the first planet around another sun-like star. And I was like, wow, this is interesting. So you're telling me that we live in the time where we're finding whole new worlds orbiting other stars? And I'm from a really tiny town, about a thousand people in Austria, a very tiny country in Europe, right? So I was like, well, that's definitely not something I can help with because I've never seen anyone like me doing this. And then I went to a conference, you know, as a student, you do go to one of these conferences and listen, and everybody was super open and nice. And they were like, how oh, we really need people to help us do this. And I was like, me, 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 right? And they said, oh, yeah, great. <laughs> and so in a way, I think if, if there's one thing that the listeners uh, we'll take from this. It's like, yeah, just ask. You know, sometimes, a lot of times, people will say, oh, yeah, we can use the help. And then if you say, me, 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 you know, maybe they'll take you and you can work on something super exciting. So what are you formally? You're an astrophysicist now? I'm an astrophysicist, yes. And it depends and a little bit who you talk to. Uh, astrophysicist is when you, wanna, when you do want to sleep on the plane. <laughs> Astronomer is when you really want to talk a lot. <laughs> and if you say you're searching for life in the universe, then it's usually never boring. <laughs> <laughs> How were you prepared to become an astrophysicist? Were you still searching for other, other interests in physics or biology? What were you studying first? Absolutely. So I started to study uh, physics as an engineer. So I kind of worked on some of the designs for the spacecrafts as well. Astronomy as a scientist. So basically learning about the whole universe. And then what I also really liked were languages. So basically I studied uh, Spanish as a translator and I studied, studied Japanese because it just sounded really cool that you have science. And it's so close to Spanish. Right? I know, right? <laughs> it's just like, I just like the fascinating thing about seeing some uh some signs that you don't know what they stand for, the Japanese alphabet, and then all of a sudden mm. it becomes a picture and you understand what's going on, which is really, really interesting. And so, so you can you can write in Japanese as well. I would say not anymore. <laughs> there was oh, okay. a time when I could, but but I think this this whole curiosity is kind of something and trying to communicate with people, that's I would say like the different languages, is something that's always been been fascinating to me. And so I get to now actually combine it because if you want to understand the planet, you have to understand how the star next to it works. You have to understand what the climate is like. You know, could it be warm enough for water or not? You have to figure out if there could be biota, biology, like some kind of life form that could live there, how that again would interact with the air, with the chemistry. And so I think a lot of people are really interested in these puzzles, or I am really interested in how things fit together and how lots of different puzzle pieces make a super interesting whole that you've never seen before, a whole puzzle that is this new world. And so, in a way, I think curiosity is what got me here, and looking at the world, always we've 
open, curious eyes. And I think that's how you see the world too, at least uh, from everything I, I do. hear. I do. I, I, I when you were talking about being curious about how things work, that's how I felt as a little boy as well. And 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 it, I'm struck by the idea that you're interested in finding other life and you also seem interested in communicating with it and you've already begun communicating with the farthest reaches of life on this planet, learning all these different languages. And I share that with you too. I lo- I, to me, I want to learn every language I can, at least up to the point that I can make somebody laugh in their own language. I think that's a great point. It isn't too hard the way I speak. And but, as we said before, instance, the good thing is like you still have your hand and feet and mimic, right? So that language point is actually sometimes a lot closer than people think because if you have hands, feet, and gestics right. plus a couple of good words, then you can make people laugh pretty fast in their language. I know. For instance, in China, one of the first things I learned was which is I'm a very big movie star. <laughs> See, you have the perfect See, I thing. Can make, I, can, I can even make you laugh with that. <laughs> I love the accent. <laughs> Do you speak Chinese too? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> But it sounded like a good reply. <laughs> Are you the director of the Carl Sagan Institute? Absolutely. So when I came to Cornell, uh, one of the questions that I got from the university is like, what can we do for you to really consider our offer? And so that's a great question to get. And I was like, well, you know, if you're looking for life in the universe, I think you really need to bring people from different fields together, from chemistry, from biology, from astronomy, from engineering, to create this forensic toolkit to really find life out there. And then, of course, the response, what I could have thought about is that they said, well, if you think we should have that, you should come and lead it. And so, voila, I became the founding director of the Carl Sagan ah, Institute you, here at Cornell. You founded it. Did you ever meet Carl Sagan? I actually never met Carl Sagan. I met Annie Druin, who is his widow, and she's amazing. And so she told me lots of stories. And she's just this amazing person. When she saw what we were trying to do, and, you know, we were trying to get this off the ground with lots of enthusiasm, not that much money, of course, as always, but we wanted to do something. And she saw what we were trying to do. And she said, you know what, Lisa? If Carl were alive, this is where he'd want to be and this is what he'd wanted to be doing. And so she gave us the name. And so that's how my Pale Blue Dot Institute became the Carl Sagan Institute here at Cornell. Oh, great. So what what's the work of the Carl Sagan Institute? What's the mission? So the mission is to find life in the universe, in our solar system and outside, and to create this tools I call it a forensic toolkit, but basically to create the means to find life if it's there, especially look by looking a little bit more outside of the box than is normal, by having ideas that come from people from many different scientific disciplines talking with each other. And one of the tools, for example, is to basically look at life in as many forms as we can, And say, well, if the planet were just a little bit different than ours, then maybe one of the life forms that we have here on Earth but never think about could actually be one of the dominant life forms. And how would that mm. appear in my telescope? 
And one of the things I really like about this is when you walk, for example, through Yellowstone, you see these gorgeous, beautiful colors. That's all different kinds of biotas that are happily living at hot sulfuric acids. And so we already know life forms that could happily live there, even so they're not you and me. And so what we're trying to do is make a color catalog of life that basically documents as much different life forms as we can and how they would look like in our telescopes to not miss signs of life if they're out there. And this is one piece of the puzzle. Mm. What about the idea that I've read proposed a few times that there are either the building blocks of life or some form of life itself that's spraying throughout the universe, traveling interstellarly? Absolutely. I think that idea is very old, and it has a lot of great appeal because you'd think, oh, maybe I'm not from here, maybe I'm from some exotic other location, another star, another planet. But if you just look at our own solar system, the Earth had the longest time with liquid water where we think you need for the emergence of life. So most likely, life actually started here on our own planet. And then if something hits our planet and pushes a part of it out, right? Yes, maybe in the inner part of that piece that now flies through the solar system, there could be some life. And then maybe it hits one of the other planets. But sometimes it's just so hard to imagine the scale of the universe. Because if we go mm. back to the cookie, and hopefully you always think about astronomy now and science when you eat a cookie, that was the whole deal. <laughs> <laughs> then you have two football fields away is the next star, right? And so sport yeah. now is forever linked with science too. That's another key thing. But there's a huge amount of empty space. So to hit something from this piece that flew off from the Earth to hit something in our solar system is really hard, just probability-wise, because there's so much empty space. But to hit something in another solar system, so he went through all these cosmic football field distances and then hit something in this other cookie over there, we're in the same scale, that is just so, so, so hard that I think chances are that life evolves where you'll find it. And I think that's great because Genesis or the start of life on many, many different worlds, on many different moons, on many different planets is going to give us much more of a diversity of life and so much more interesting things to look for. This has been such a good conversation for me. I, we have to continue it another time. We have we need to stop now, but I I want to hear more and I want to keep track of your work because you've got you're on a path that really is fascinating. And there's probably no one who hasn't looked up at the stars and said, "I wonder, I wonder if we're alone." And you're 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 working on an answer to that. That's so great. I think one of the things that I want out of my life, I want to be able to walk out and have a picnic under the stars and actually point to that star over there, that star you see in the night sky, and say, look over there. Maybe there is somebody who's looking up right now, too, and wondering whether or not they're alone. This is great. We always end our show with seven quick questions that are just a little bit related to communication. Are you game? Yeah, of course. 
Now, this this is an interesting question to come after our conversation, but it might be you might have a surprising answer. What do you wish you really understood? Life. Life. Yeah, <laughs> that would answer a lot of questions, wouldn't it? What is it? And it's also a good thing if you say life, it could mean anything, right? You are life, how to do life, how to communicate, how to find life somewhere else. It's a good one answer, quite one, one and letter it, and question. And it really brings... It brings up the question of when you think you found life on another planet or, or hope to, what are your standards for what constitutes life? Absolutely. One of the big things is that if you were to find life on another planet, you'd have to be very sure that you have no other explanation for it. And Carl Sagan, I think, said it best, extraordinary uh, things that you find need extraordinary evidence. Right. Ironclad would be another word for it. So no other explanation I can come up with all my scientific training and all the most um, most criticism in the world. I cannot come up with another explanation. That's what I'm looking for. Okay, here's the next question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Straight out, I think you have your facts wrong. <laughs> That's that's pretty straight. That's good. And then you go from there and see the, the, the expression on the face and see where <laughs> yeah, you go from there. You see a r- r- red cheeks. What's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? I don't even remember. Um, that's, I have no idea. Oh, yeah. So uh, one of the strangest questions I ever got is like, so really, you are a scientist? I always expected them to look very differently. Unfortunately, that's not so strange, that question. (laughs) But I think personally, this is one of the really strange questions where you're like, "Um, okay. (laughs) Yeah, I hear it too often from from women scientists. The the stereotype precedes them. It was actually very funny because I was giving a talk in the church. So in Germany, yeah. we did the lunchtime talk at the church, and the priest meant it like completely non-offensive. He was just super excited to see somebody who didn't look like the textbook version, but he was like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, I'm are pretty sure. Are you sure? sure? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm a scientist. <laughs> and I was like, uh, is the answer to this one, thank you? <laughs> you know, <laughs> because it's not the stereotype. <laughs> yeah, that's probably the safe answer to get, get on with it, right? <laughs> So how do you stop a compulsive talker? Ooh, how do you stop a compulsive talker? Um, that That is, a, okay, <laughs> do you have a good answer? <laughs> I asked you first. <laughs> I, I think worst case scenario is just like you have to go, right? <laughs> but I have now figured that one out. Oh, no, okay. no, no. There's well, actually a good one. There's a good one. Oh, what? what? You say, I'm a physicist. <laughs> and then they have to go. <laughs> Usually, you never, ever mention you're an astronomer, and Hubble is nothing you ever heard of. But if you're a physicist, right. some people take that very serious. I know psychiatrists who have the same problem. They never, they, they say, oh, I, I, I work with people. <laughs> You, know, you say I'm a psychiatrist, you say, oh, yeah, what am I thinking? Well, I think the so, problem is if you say you're a psychiatrist, they try to say, oh, I had this thing. What do you think this is? So physicist yeah, is right. usually have, a safer bet. I have a friend. Nobody ever says I have a friend. Where's the nearest star? Yeah, that's true. How, now, you, let's say you're at a dinner party sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a real conversation? 
Do I know anything about the person? Who know you just met. What are you most interested in? Hmm. And then go from there. I usually am curious about kind of all the answers. And I like people. So uh, trying to figure out what people are interested in and why and learning something from that conversation is what I love so, to do. So, okay, the person says, I'm interested in golf. What do you, where do you go from there? What, what is interesting golf? Is it the walking? Do you have different kind of clubs or swings? And no, good, 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 you good. You, you, you can actually do it with that. I think the interesting Here's, thing yeah. is if you know nothing about the topic, you know, it's even easier yeah, then to you get have a something lot to ask about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Next to last question. What gives you confidence? What gives me confidence? Uh, just generally or in work or in... Sorry. Well, what if, this is a scientist asking like follow-up question. <laughs> what gives me confidence? People. People give you People, con- friends, how do they do that? family. Ah, uh, ah, yeah. By by being uh, by being a network, by being people who care, by uh, by worrying about me, by caring about me, by asking if everything's all right. So that gives me confidence in the human species, and that we hopefully gonna survive in the long run too. Okay, last question: What book changed your life? A couple. I think one is uh, "Science Like a Candle in the Dark: A Demon Haunted World" by Carl Sagan. I think his clear prose on how the different, uh, how how science can cut through some of the biggest confusions uh, in the 20th or 21st century, it's pretty timeless, is something that still sticks with me and that I use a lot in class and that I use a lot in life. And it shows the beauty of our world, but it shows that you don't have to sacrifice scientific knowledge or accuracy or uh, the accuracy to getting answers to live in a world that is even more beautiful than anything you could imagine if you would just want to stay ignorant. Oh, that's great. Lisa, I love I loved talking with you. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. See you soon, I hope. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, Alan. Bye-bye. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. For more information about the Alda Center, please visit aldacenter.org. Lisa Kaltenegger is the director of the Carl Sagan Institute at Cornell, where she explores new worlds orbiting other stars, and she's also a leading expert in modeling potentially habitable worlds. Because of her research and her impact on space exploration, Dr. Kaltenegger may be the first guest on Clear and Vivid to have an asteroid named after her. So if you're searching the skies tonight, look for asteroid Kaltenegger 7734. Some of you might also recognize her from her IMAX 3D movie, The Search for Life in Space. Her first book, Are We Alone in the Universe, has been published in German and Italian. For more information about Lisa Kaltenegger and her work, you can visit the Carl Sagan Institute online at carlsaganinstitute.org. 
This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our executive producer, Sarah Chase, and our associate producer, Gene Shermay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, our tech guru is Allison Costin, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And don't forget, you can always say, Alexa, play Clear and Vivid on Apple Podcasts. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee. He's not only a vivid writer, which he's shown in his books, The Emperor of All Maladies, A Biography of Cancer, and his latest, The Gene and Intimate History. He's also a leading researcher, pioneering innovative ways to treat cancer using the potent gene editing tool known as CRISPR. Just to be very clear, there are many dangers of CRISPR, but In the history of human beings, in the history of humankind, we have not come across a molecular tool, a molecular machine, with this level of ease that can allow us to alter genomes. It is a powerful tool, it can be misused, but let's not underestimate the enormous good use that CRISPR can be put to. Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee, next time on Clear and Vivid.